you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground Podcast. I am your host, Phil, along with me, as always, is my trusty co-host, the best and fastest researcher in the West, Camille. And tonight, we are very honored to have our first presidential candidate on the episode or on the show, Dr. Michael Reckenwald, who is running as a libertarian. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. How are you tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. Um, so... Obviously, running as a libertarian, you're not up on stage with the big stars on, uh, you know, CBS and stuff like that. So why don't you tell people and introduce yourself uh, to the audience, who you are and where you came from? Sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, Michael Rechtenwald, and um, I am the uh, former NYU professor who took on the woke mob for free speech. I'm also uh, uh, a, an ex-Marxist turned radical libertarian. I'm the author of uh, 12 books, including Google Archipelago, um, Beyond Woke, Thought Criminal, and The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, amongst others, of course. And I'm running for president as a libertarian, uh, and uh, I have been endorsed by major figures in the libertarian movement like Dave Smith and Josh Napolitano and... Uh, Walter Block and uh, Jeff Dice, the former president of the Mises Institute, and a host of other people. And mm -hmm. uh, my uh, website, just so I get this out there for the campaign, is wrecktheregime.com. That's R E C the regime.com. So uh, I think people would be curious to know how does a former Marxist go from one end of the spectrum? all the way over to a diehard libertarian who's now running for president. How does that <laughs> transformation even happen to someone? Was it you picked up Murray Rothbard's Anatomy of the State, or did, was it something else? It's, it's not that simple. Um, it, it isn't about, you know, the research came uh, later, but it really had to do with uh, the, uh, it was kind of a trauma that I sustained at the hands of the, uh, of the woke mobsters. And uh, the uh, uh, the uh, they opened up my eyes to uh, see exactly what they represent, and I soon uh, saw them as the totalitarians, the wannabes that they are. And, uh, and then I uh, started into a an entire entirely different. Uh, I, I had a kind of gestalt shift, and uh, you know it wasn't. It wasn't with. It was in within hours, really, uh, of seeing what I was looking at, that I became a civil libertarian. And that is, somebody mm -hmm. believes in individual rights as uh, primary, and then uh, did some, started into research uh, and reading deeply, and uh, also reading about the history of. Uh, you know, I knew about the history of uh, leftist political. Criminality, but I, I went into a deep dive in that, and uh, at the same time, exploring the libertarian tradition through uh, Ludwig von Mises first, and then uh, Rothbard, and then Hoppe. Uh, that's Hans Hermann Hoppe, 
and uh, and many others. And uh, so I, you know, and I've, all these uh, last five books I've written have all been from a libertarian perspective. And uh, I started into a new uh, life phase uh, from being a tenured, a full full professor at NYU. Uh, to becoming what I call an intellectual entrepreneur, and that is living by my wits and writing and uh, and uh, producing material that people actually want to read, un- un- unlike academic uh, research and writing, which you know garners very few readers. So I, I reached a much wider audience. Um, my story at NYU became national news. And I was soon on all kinds of TV shows and stuff like that and have been on them since. But um, that uh, sort of propelled me into the, um, into the media sphere. And, uh, and then I, I should say that um, I, I, I really recognized that uh, the, the left that I had been associating with was, uh, I, I really was misplaced there in the first place. I really, I really didn't belong, uh, and uh, because I had always kind of uh, suppressed or repressed various thoughts that I'd had uh, that you just aren't allowed to think, and uh, that are verboten. They're sort of potential thought crimes. In mm-hmm. fact, I was having uh, those thoughts, and I recognized at one point uh, that if I expressed what I was thinking as an NYU professor, all hell would break loose. And indeed, it did. Yeah, it's. Uh, I went to law school, uh, sort of around the start of the Trump years, and left school law schools are notoriously left leaning anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But let's say Trump just made everybody and every faculty member go out of their mind to the point where, when I was president of the Federal Society at our school, which is a nonpartisan organization, although they say they're you know mostly libertarian. Um, People Mm -hmm. couldn't stand that I had scheduled someone from uh, the FIRE organization, which just wants to talk about free speech on campus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people on campus were uh, calling for my head saying, how dare someone actually have someone like this on campus? We can't allow people like this on campus. What are they going to talk about? What are they going to tell our students when it's literally just someone coming in and saying, Here's your rights on campus. Here's how your free speech is protected. If you have any issues, we're a nonprofit organization. We'll fight on your behalf. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is pretty incredible how far down the rabbit hole or down this path academia has become where they pretend that they're all about constructive discourse or mm-hmm. um, constructive dialogue, but they really aren't. Mm-hmm. It's more like, you can you can argue in this little sandbox and that's it but if you're mm-hmm. out here and you believe something yeah. different we're going to ostracize you and make you feel like you're not welcome and you should be you know kicked out of school is that sort am i like yeah. on the yeah. right path i mean they have the the overton window is very uh skewed and very narrow and um when you uh, go outside of it, uh, you're going to find uh, what you didn't realize was there all that time. And that is you're going to hit a third rail and then you will see what shock you create and what shock it'll create for yourself. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what happened to me. Um, I had no idea what, what was in store 
when I made some of the statements that I made, and um, and uh, they uh, they were very censorious and very uh, uh, unaccommodating, <laughs> to put it mildly. And mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's quite an experience, but that uh, it it for me it unleashed a whole. Um, a new era of creativity. I just exploded with uh, writing and uh, essays and uh, speeches and stuff like that. So it was very liberating um, mm. when I renounced the whole left at one, in one fell swoop, renounced Marxism, renounced uh, the whole, you know, establishment, really. It is the establishment. That's the interest. That's the other thing. We're, mm -hmm. we're talking about the establishment itself. So the political establishment is a leftist totalitarian establishment. Right. Yeah, I, I watched you on Tim Pool just recently, um, mm -hmm. and you had mentioned about how we need elites to sort of decouple. And I don't know if you can see it. I'm wearing my The Elites Hate You uh, sweatshirt. So I think we're on the same page regarding the elites and how they control this country. Um, yeah. So I call running them for subversive elites, yeah. yeah, subversive elites, yeah, subversive elites. That's a good way to put it. Um, but they certainly the the elites don't like us, and they they definitely want to do everything they can to control us. But mm -hmm. running for president as a libertarian, mm -hmm. I'm sure you hear a lot of the criticism. I get it as well. When I uh, if I bring a libertarian on or something, they say, "Oh, they don't have any chance to win. Why do you care?" Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Explain to the listeners why it's so important that there is a libertarian president candidate out there on the trail talking about stuff well somebody has to represent liberty in a principled fashion and uh that's where the libertarian candidate comes into play um and uh, you know the thing about libertarianism uh if it is if you hold the you know the view it is the most principled position out there and uh it'll um it, it gives you a guidestone for treating any kinds of issues that come up uh, and, uh, and uh, you have, you're not just swaying with public opinion, trying to test the waters with different views. You're actually making a principled stand on all these issues of the day. <laughs> and, uh, this, this is very, uh, this is very important for, uh, the American public and any particular nation state population to hear. They need to know what it is uh, that liberty liberty is. They need to know what liberty is and uh, why it's the most essential property that human beings have uh, and uh, why, it, in fact, it has to be defended. So well, while we may not win the election, and I'm not deluded enough to think that, you know, uh, listen, I want to win, but I also I'd like to win the lottery, too. Uh, but um, But winning, we have to redefine it. In terms of creating more libertarians, producing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting it's a 50-state media tour, mm -hmm. and it is also a uh, an opportunity uh, to uh, to reach the public in a way that they won't be reached by these, uh, you know, equivocating and uh, rather compromised uh, politicians that are on the stage. Mm -hmm. I'm not a politician uh, at all. I never had any political ambition whatsoever. I was asked to run by the Mises Caucus of the Insti of the uh, Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party, 
And, uh, you know, I, I have spoken for the, with, uh, spoken for them at various events and I am a big believer in their vision. And, uh, so they asked me to basically be the spokesperson for that vision. And, uh, that's why I accepted it. And, um, you know, we're work. I'm running on a campaign of decentralization, uh, localization, resting power from the federal government, investing it in the people at the local level, and uh, and so that's the message. We're not talking about some white knight riding into D.C. and fixing everything like every other candidate is promising. In fact, most of the libertarian candidates are promising that. I'm, I think I'm the only candidate in the entire race, including all the other parties, that's not promising uh, things that can't be done. And, and I don't think that this system can be reformed or fixed or even overthrown from the top down. It has to be done from the bottom up. That's actually a perfect segue because that was going to be my next talking point and my next topic. Um, I, I read your essay about two nations. And mm, the two nations. And, and we've, uh, I, I mean, we've talked about it on our podcast, not nearly as eloquently as you've put it in your essay. And I urge any of my listeners go to michaelreckonwall.com. Check it out. It's a great essay. Um, Thank you. You dive into sort of the, com- the, the, the difference between globalism versus localism. And yeah. we've talked about on this program, especially regarding California. California is an enormous state, 40 million people. 58 counties. I mean, the thing could be run like its own country, like its own mini mm-hmm. United States. And when you talk about the difference between San Diego County and Butte County or Inyo County, I mean, they're vastly different with different peoples and heritages and culture. And, and, and to think that Sacramento can rule over all 58 of these counties that are so diverse. Yeah you kind of step back and go, well, this is ludicrous. Like it is. there should be more power in the counties, in the cities. And um, I think we saw a little bit of that in COVID where people started to wake up and go, what are my county supervisors doing? Why are they instituting these COVID mandates? Or we had a mayor here in San Diego County, Bill Wells of El Cajon, who basically said, look, I'm not listening to Gavin Newsom. I'm not going to send the police to enforce any of these business lockdowns. If any of these businesses want to stay open, I'm not going to be the one to punish them. And that sort of local protection is a great example of how localism can push back on centralized power. Um, Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that and sort of this idea of localism and bringing the power back to localities? Yeah, that's that's right. And COVID is a great example of why this was why this is necessary. In fact, because you know to drive their agenda, whether the you know statist, globalist, whatever you want to call them, they need to drive their agenda into the fabric of society at the local level for that for their policies and and imperatives to succeed. And likewise, if these things can be resisted at the local and individual level, uh, then their their policies fail, and their draconian measures, as under COVID, fail. So that's why localism is so important. So the idea is that now it's important to put people in place in in local offices that are supportive of and fighting for freedom. 
uh, and uh, that are trying to resist centralized control, un unconstitutional laws and mandates, and are nullifying them uh, by virtue of uh, the 10th Amendment, frankly. And uh, so that, that's, it's necessary. So even at the local level, I will say, there is a lot of, um, uh, I think I just saw an article in the New Yorker, which I don't really often read, but somebody pointed it out to me. And uh, it was about how there really isn't that great of a difference between the rural communities and the cities, the urban centers, in the sense that um, in both places, there are, uh, there's the status, you know, every bit is the Every bit as compliant and complicit with the state, the federal state, as uh, as in the urban centers. So uh, that's why it's important to get the right people into these positions, so that you know, look, they're trying to drive Agenda 2030 and Agenda 21 into the local uh, communities to have uh, uh, the kind of policies that these globalists would have us adopt. Uh, adopt it at the local level. So we need to have people in there that resist these things and uh, that vote against them, uh, that uh, vote to nullify uh, and to, uh, as your uh, mayor did, simply to refuse the dictates that they're dishing out and uh, to be aware of what the agenda is that they're trying to resist too. So that's all very important. Speaking of California, we're, you know, a very blue state here where they're constantly screaming at us, equity, equity and equality. And I saw you were a guest on a Don't Tread on Anyone podcast with Keith Knight, and you paraphrased a quote from Will Durant, equality is the enemy of liberty. I loved that. Will you expand mm. on that a little bit for our audience? Sure. Um, so equality and liberty are very, you know, they're, they're, there's a great deal of tension between them, the two. Uh, and uh, because when you enforce equality, you basically have to curtail the liberty of people, uh, especially those who would achieve more, who would own more, who would, especially when you're talking about what they call equity. Equity is the production of equal outcomes for people, regardless of, of anything. And uh, so uh, when they're trying to force equity on you, uh, curtails the liberty of people because it, it, you have to squelch people. You have to squash them in order to create equality. It's kind of like uh, the the novel by Kurt Vonnegut, Harrison Bergeson, and uh, where they, in this novel, they effectively, if somebody has too many, uh, too high of an IQ, they provide, you know, send brain you know, waves into their brain to disrupt their uh, their thinking or uh, they reduce their height or something like that. So this all cuts against uh, individual uh, individuality and, of course, liberty itself because you have to restrain some people. And even in the case of the Soviet Union, you had to kill them in order to attain this so-called equality. Uh, so equality and liberty and also democracy. Equality and, uh, I'm sorry, democracy and liberty are very, it's very fraught with tension uh, because um, a majority might vote to rob you of your property, which is exactly what democracy does. Uh, in many cases, you get people on the voter rolls 
who decide that your wealth is not earned or that you don't deserve it or that you shouldn't have it or that you have too much. And so they vote to rob you of it. You know, so uh, this is why democracy and liberty are also somewhat antithetical, actually. Going back to uh, the localism issue, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> you had finished your point about electing people into these local positions, and it's so important. Um, during COVID, I remember getting a lot of messages through social media, and people said, you know, what can we do? What can we do? And you gave them the answer, which is you have to get people in these local positions, whether it's school board, city council, county mm -hmm. supervisor. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's so crucial. And I think people, thankfully, are starting to see that and see that these positions do make a difference. Um, mm -hmm. And I think part of your goal as a presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party is also to help lift those candidates up as well in the local mm -hmm. positions. Is that correct in your yeah, mind? Yeah, that's right. We're trying to promote people to run and to help them run and to enable them to to uh, wrest power from the central government by getting in office and by um, getting uh, the, the the state, you know, the federal state off of our backs. And uh, so, yeah, we're we're trying to encourage that because uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. So yeah, indeed the campaign is about that. So being successful will be, you know, that's why I say the campaign is really not just a campaign. It's, it's a movement. Mm -hmm. It's a movement to uh, usher in this uh, decentralized revolution as we call it. As exciting. And one of the most exciting pieces of news was uh, Lily Wu winning Wichita out in kansas um mm -hmm. we actually brought it up on the show was it last you're week? not in kansas anymore <laughs> not in kansas anymore um but i literally i was watching the election results come in and i kept and i think i tweeted out two minutes before she was announced as the winner saying that republicans will never make headway or change the party or grow their party if they don't know how to win in urban cities and then about right. a minute later Lily Wu won in Wichita, and I sent that tweet out and said, it looks like the Libertarian Party has figured it out. Why can't Republicans? So I think mm -hmm. that's a bit great sign that Libertarians have figured out we can flip blue cities that were formerly run by Democrats um, into our column. Do you know mm -hmm. much about that race? Do you have an opinion on probably why she won that race? Or I don't have too much. I don't know much about the race, frankly. Okay, but do you think that libertarians have that opportunity that Republicans are just not getting into the cities and, and connecting well, with voters in the uh, cities? They, so. they have a lot of uh, baggage that they're carrying with them, whereas the libertarians do not have that baggage. That's so, a great way to put it. Yeah. No. I mean, like, we can be representing, we could be basically be purist with our rep in representing the ideas that we have and the policies and the way we would. Uh, undertake so-called governance uh, associations, either with, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, oh, I don't know, you know, all the things that attend to the idea of the Republican Party and, and Trumpism as well as part of that. Uh, we don't have that kind of baggage to carry around. So we can represent these views and then they'll be just seen for what they are. Kind of a silly question, but I'm very curious on your opinion. The internet is split on this. Founding fathers, libertarian or not? 
definitely. Not all of them. I mean, some were more libertarian than others. Uh, the Federalists uh, were much more libertarian uh, in that they wanted to to give power to the local um, uh, at the local level, and they 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 pushed the Tenth Amendment and nullification for the for nullification, and they also um, got rid of. Uh, they they introduced the Bill of Rights and uh, as a as a kind of uh, countermeasure to some of the centralization that the Constitution itself represented, and so I think that not all of them were as libertarian as others, but the spirit of libertarianism ran definitely deep uh, in the founding fathers. Do you think they take a one look at? where America is now and, and pass out or have a heart attack in shock of how far. Well, they federal... would not recognize it as the country they founded mm -hmm. uh, because it's a big giant uh, bureaucratic state, the largest state in human history uh, with the largest budget ever for a state and uh, the most, uh, you know, interventionist country uh, probably in history as well, and they wanted nothing to do with foreign entanglements or uh, foreign wars that, that had nothing to do with the United States directly. And so mm -hmm. they would look at the United States as a pernicious, uh, even evil empire, really, I think. Yeah, that's always been uh, the one constant in my political lifetime. And I, I, I'm not, I've been on the left, I've been on the right. Um, the one thing that I've always been is anti-war. I, you know, I, I've always been anti-war. Uh, it's one of the most things that I, I almost don't negotiate on with a lot of people in terms of, we should not be involved in these foreign conflicts. We should not be sending money over there. We shouldn't certainly be sending our sons and daughters and, and mm -hmm. military over there to die in, in countries that have nothing to really do with us. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I'm of the non-interventionist belief that we should be staying out of these foreign uh, conflicts, but that doesn't seem to be that that doesn't seem as popular with current Democrats and Republicans. I mean, we just had mm -hmm. two nights ago or last week was it with the presidential debate? It was almost like they were arguing over who could be the biggest war hawk, which yeah. to me gives me a, a pit in my stomach of like, is this the George Bush era again? Is this like? 2002 2003 all over again this republican party it's just scary to me yeah well it's a uniparty too it's not just the republicans um it seems that there's one area that the, that the democrats and republicans agree upon and that is the uh area of foreign intervention and war they both seem to be eager uh and uh there there's neocons of course in both parties and uh, so that's what ties them together. That's what makes them the unit party. As Murray Rothbard put it, it's in war that the state really comes into its own. That's where the state really becomes what it is and, uh, and becomes uh, the epitome of statehood or statism, I should say, um, in that it it, it justifies itself through war, too. It, it uses war as a means of legitimation. Mm -hmm. That means to uh, make itself 
seem absolutely necessary to the citizens who are figured as needing the state's protection against this enemy, when in fact, this is an enemy not of the people, but of the state. And so, yeah, I've been anti-war since I was uh, seven years old. <laughs> as far back as I can remember when watching the Vietnam War on television and uh, not falling for the anti-Soviet propaganda of the Cold War, not falling. And then, of course, when uh, the first Gulf War hit, I was, I was against that. And then, of course, the Iraq War and even the Afghanistan War. Um, so, and now this one, and of course, Ukraine. Uh, so I've been anti-war all my life, I, even as a leftist. In fact, I was a speaker at, uh, at the anti-war rally in New York, uh, in 2002, uh, or was it 2001? I can't remember. But anyway, it was 2001 where Bush, George W. Bush took over. In February mm -hmm. of the year that he took over, I already knew that there would be a war in Iraq. I knew that they were going to bomb Iraq. And mm -hmm. then when they did it, uh, you know, I was I was very vocal about that. I ran an anti-war website, uh, so activist site. So yeah, I've always been anti-war. War is the um, represents like the um, uh, first of all, it it, it increases the the aggression of the state on its domestic population uh, through, you know, taxation and uh, tax aggression, if you will. And it also, uh, obviously, in the, in the case of the United States, it, is, uh, it increases the um, antipathy for the country in foreign lands. And it actually wrecks our relationships with many places that we could be in good stead with otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, it's immoral in the sense that it violates the non-aggression principle. That is, you should not initiate violence against anyone. Uh, you only have the right to act in defense of person and property. And so I believe that all these uh, wars have been, uh, have been unjust and uh, violations of the NAP, non-aggression principle. I also believe that we should pull our troops from all... Uh, 903 bases around the world. We should not be arming and funding Israel's uh, onslaught and uh, devastation of Gaza. We should not be funding Ukraine. We certainly shouldn't fund and arm Taiwan. Uh, all of these things should stop. That actually leads me to my next question. But Phil, do you want to go ahead first? No, go yeah. ahead. Okay. Um, since September of this year, nearly 30,000 migrants have been dropped off in San Diego. And mm. uh, in 2022, the DEA seized enough fentanyl to kill every American twice. So open borders are often a libertarian stance. Where do mm -hmm. you stand on that personally? Well, as a candidate and personally, I am not an open borders candidate at all. As a matter of fact, okay, I start from the principle if we lived in, a, in an ideal, which I would conceive of as an ideal society, a perfectly private property society where there was no public or state property, the only way somebody could come on your property is if they were invited to come on. You can't just walk onto somebody's property, walk into somebody's house uninvited and stay there. So I take that principle and apply it to the state 
the 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 state so-called state property is really the the property of the citizens who pay taxes in that state. Likewise, no one should be allowed into the country unless they're invited explicitly. And therefore, anybody that just crosses a border without an invitation is actually violating the non-aggression principle or the very mm -hmm. primary principle of libertarianism. So I am against open borders. I think we should have immigration by in invitation only. And that means, say, uh, a person uh, could invite somebody to uh, rent a property or buy a house or a company could invite somebody to work. And then they'd have to go through the whole naturalization process if they wanted to become citizens. But nobody should be just allowed to cross into a country without an invitation. By that stance, there are sounds... open borders candidates in the race. I'm sorry, there is one open borders candidate in the race, and mm. I think it's lunacy. Uh, it's creating a humanitarian catastrophe on top of the uh, disaster that it's creating for the country in terms of finances. I mean, you know, we're luring these people in with social welfare and l opening the borders and basically inviting them in. Un, uh, un, unmolested, I mean, they're just able to just walk right in and then sign up for effective benefits that, that some citizens don't get. Um, mm. And it's just an outrage. It's, it's robbery of the citizens. I have a question about that, too. But I think Phil had a question, so... Yeah, yeah sorry. No, that's okay, but I was just going to echo uh, your sentiment, and I think that's one thing that um, libertarians people from the outside kind of look at libertarians and, and jump to the conclusion, oh, libertarians are open borders. Um, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like more of the Mises caucus have lined up with this position of if you pretend, if we all just sit here and go, this is private property, this is our country. I mean, the state has public property, which we effectively grant to them through taxes. And that's a whole different issue. Which they steal the, from us. Which sure. they steal from us. They they're only allowed to have this property because by the force of violence or the threat of violence, they take this right. property. So effectively, as citizens, we own all of this land anyway. So right. we should just be able to say, no, you're not allowed to come into exactly. our land, which is our country. Um right. and, and by invitation only, that's that's um that's that's definitely a little bit stricter on the other side of what even well, people let, yeah, ahead. if I may if I may jump in let me say this, that not only should they have to be invited, but the person who invites them should be financially and socially and, and otherwise liable for that person. So if they mm -hmm. destroy or kill somebody or rob somebody, it's on. It's actually the person who invited them is culpable. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, that, that even adds more to it. Now, I've been told that this is actually a very liberal pro uh, pro uh, policy because... It, it it would allow corporations just to invite people in to work for them. And I said, that's fine, as long as they're invited. But as long as that corporation then takes responsibility for them. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's more of a privatization of immigration where the corporation is inviting and, and taking liability for their actions anyway. And if they want to take on the risk of bringing those immigrants in, yeah. that's up to them. And they have to deal with the consequences if it goes south. So. Camille, yeah. you had a question you wanted to yes. 
just a moment ago, you said many of these migrants are coming and they're getting better benefits than a lot of our citizens. Uh, I've read different different numbers, but in California, there's like between 10,000 and 20,000 homeless veterans. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you believe that we should be doing more for them? If so, oh, what? Well, I mean, what we've done to veterans is an absolute travesty, an absolute travesty. So we've wrecked their lives through PTSD and other illnesses and, uh, mut you know, mutilated their corpses and, uh, you know, in many cases, just psychologically damaged people and physically. I read an article in the New York, New York Times, which I also don't read much. Uh, and in that article, they talked about uh, this campaign. I think it was in uh, uh, Yemen where they were firing cannons at such a rate that they, these people sustained microscopic brain damage from, from the ongoing shelling because of the, the vibrations of their heads, their brains. Uh, and these people suffered all kinds of problems. They thought that was PS, uh, PTSD, but it actually was uh, something even more... Um, more physical, more, more it's like uh, shaken baby syndrome, but for adults. Yes, exactly. So these people, these these poor veterans, were like hallucinating and and uh, having uh, you know like really bad panic attacks and you know severe anxiety. Uh, I think that uh, first of all, they shouldn't be used this way in the first place. So, but now that they have been used this way, uh, and that is in these aggressive wars. They should be compensated, uh, and uh, the state is culpable for that. They should be compensated by the state, uh, and uh, you know th this shouldn't go on any further. So we don't have any further compensation like this. But these people were uh, robbed of their lives, really L robbed of uh, their futures in many cases, and psychologically and physically uh destroyed in many cases so there's really no adequate there's no sufficient compensation for that but nevertheless they should be uh compensated and uh, that means probably housed and uh, fed and uh given medical services uh without cost and i don't mean the veterans administration they should be seen at the best hospitals in the world mm -hmm. yeah um i mean I think that's part of why I'm so anti-war is because I think, um, you know, one of my family members came back from world war two. He was only 23 and he lost his leg. He actually had his leg amputated by the, while he was a prisoner of a Nazi war hospital. And to think that the, the trauma he went through that he dealt with the rest of his life because of what he saw in world war two and what he had to go through at such a young age, people forget, or they're blinded, I guess, or they're just so ignorant of the idea of like, there's a human cost to war. And it's easy to sit on social media and say, let's go send everybody to war. Let's go do this. Or, you know, go mm -hmm. kill the bastards. But they don't ever want to see the repercussions or the fallout or who comes back and how they come back. Um, so that always, that's, that's one of the big things that makes me anti-war is, is just, People just forget about veterans once they come back. It seems like they just don't care. They they don't think of them as real human beings. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, terrible. One thing, 
kind of a weird pivot now from that, but uh, I want to talk about the economy in California um, okay. simply because the economy, we hear people like Gavin Newsom say California is the fifth largest economy. And they love to tout that. The, the Democrats in Sacramento always say, oh, it's the fifth largest economy, whether that's true or not. Sometimes it's fifth or eighth or whatever. Um, they, they always try to say, look, we're the fifth largest because of our incredible policies. That's why we're the fifth largest. And my theory has always been, I think California is fifth largest despite the policies of Democrats. And if we were to truly unleash the, the sort of ability and the abundance of California, what we have here. Mm -hmm. It could be even higher. It could be a, a lift for the entire country. It mm -hmm. would be an enormous place of of wealth and abundance. Yes. Um, do you have any opinion on, on sort of the economic policies in California? Because they are kind of spreading to the rest of the country. So, Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of opinions. Um, I mean, the principal opinion is that when you when you dedicate money to welfare and homelessness and even drugs uh, and uh, whatever you whatever you hold out money for you actually produce more of what you're trying to mitigate mm. this is the law of economics i can't remember the name of this law but i've been looking for it for three weeks <laughs> actually but i can't find it i read it once and i uh, should have saved that file but i did not in any case it's a law of economics that when you when you pay for something and you put money for something, you're going to get more of that something. You, you could look at it in terms of the supply curve generally. That is, the more you supply something, the more you're going to have of it. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you supply more money for any widget, for example, you'll get more widgets produced. If you supply money for welfare and uh, other uh, social programs, you're going to get more of the very problems that you're trying, to, you're supposedly trying to mitigate. I don't even mm. believe that that's what they're trying to do. I think they're trying to ingratiate people to the state by virtue of handouts that then make people cripples and dependents, and then uh, they have their loyal subjects then and mm -hmm. voters. Uh, so, and this is also the way the state operates on a on a national level too and increasing welfare and uh it it holds it creates a hostage class uh, of the state the state has a kind of class in hostage and these people will show their fealty for the state and even for its warfare policies because they're not going to buck the system at all because they're living off of this and, and they can't you know they've become disabled to live in any other way, so um, this is a this is the problem. It cripples people. It creates literal cripples, mm -hmm. and uh, you know. So California throwing all this money at uh, homelessness. Uh, I know they have like in San Francisco. I, I think they spend eight hundred and fifty billion dollars a year on homelessness, and I think uh, New York spends somewhere around one point two. Uh, uh, well, uh, way less. I don't know exactly the number, but it's, mm. I mean, they spend way less per capita, New York does, not way less in number. I think it's it's a bigger number, but it's, le it's less per capita. Mm. 
Um, so, and look at San Francisco. It's a total disaster. Um, so well, the more I, you, yeah, it's yeah, clean. actually, well, yeah, it's clean right now because <laughs> President Xi is there and Gavin Newsom, I don't know where he hit all the homeless people. Um, but Camille, actually, it's funny you bring up this because Camille, you sent me an article literally just the other day about this, about homeless nonprofits. And it was, I don't know if I'm quoting it right. It's about the incentive program and the incentive it's about incentives um that if you pay to get rid of homeless and you give mm-hmm. all these nonprofits all the money well if someone's making $500,000 a year as a CEO of a nonprofit that helps homeless They're why do you think they would yes. yeah there's never going to get rid of homelessness they have a disincentive to get rid of homelessness mm-hmm. in fact mm-hmm. they they need homelessness the same thing goes for like racial issues you know if you, if you, you know, like in the university, I said this many times, uh, these people that, that have departments of like, you know, black studies or this studies and that study, these people don't have any interest in getting rid of the problem because they actually need the problem to survive, to, to make money. The problem is the source of their income. And so they're not going to mitigate the problem or end it. Certainly they don't want to end it because then they're out of a job. And that goes for this issue as well. Yeah, and in California, to your point about reliance on the state, they have got quite the strategy between you have the nonprofits who are are profiting from all this money and the grants that they're getting to solve these social issues like homelessness, and then you have the unions, which are probably the biggest enemy of Californians mm-hmm. going, and, and they unions pretend at this point that they're for the workers. But when you actually look at the unions here in California, like the California Teachers Association, which is the biggest and most powerful, they mm-hmm. rarely actually care about their members more. They care about the presidents and the CEO, the people who are running the unions, who right. then take all of your money and donate it to the politician who then and writes a law a to benefit. in that industry. Correct. Yeah. So it, it seems that... We just... He was on a. He must have hit a real profound point there because he froze. He froze there. (laughs) Am I back yet? You're back. Did I come back? Okay. You said something so profound that you you turned into a statue. Oh, (laughs) I I broke the internet on it. It was a good point. I'm sorry I can't say it again. Uh, No, I I was just saying about the unions in terms of California has gotten it down to a science where when they passed AB5, they basically got rid of all of uh, the gig economy and contractors, mm. the, the freedom and the liberty to kind of just hang out a shingle, go do what you want. There he goes Did again. Did it do it again? He's just never going to get to say this. Speaking of California brownouts, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry, did I, did I get cut yeah, off again? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you froze again. Yeah. Oh, it's it's the, the damn unions. Anyway, I'll get this point out. They don't want the this unions. Out. <laughs> the unions have been trying to take over every single aspect of every part of our economy since AB five contractors. They they limit the ability for anybody to have the liberty and freedom. We're gonna to just... have to move on from that point. Okay, I don't know if it's the I don't know if it's the point or maybe <laughs> close some programs. I don't know. Something's eating your your bandwidth over there. Am I back yet? Mm-hmm. You're back. Am I back? Okay. Yeah. Anyway, that was my point about unions. Um, I'll just move on from that point because they don't want to get it out. Um, yeah. But yeah, between 
between the unions and everything else, they, they want everybody a public worker or a servant to Sacramento in the state. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think people need to realize they're not here to help you. Um, the state wants you to be subservient to them, not to have right. the freedom to do what you want to do. And if California could just get out of that mindset, where people start to work and have the freedom and businesses aren't taxed or regulated to death. I mean, the, I think the opportunities here in California could be absolutely enormous. Um, it would be a cornucopia, I believe. It would be, uh, it would be the envy of the world, I believe. But right now we're seeing how the state monopolizes every industry or they're trying to, and the detrimental effects it has on the people. So that was my point. I was trying to get around to it. Yeah, it's a good point. That's actually 100% right. Um, so what would, like, you know, I know you're running for president, but let's say mm -hmm. you were to become governor of California uh, tomorrow. <laughs> what would be something you would, you would tackle right away? Well, first of all, I'd get all the money out of, uh, I'd take all the, um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd tackle the education system first and uh, turn it private altogether, get mm. rid of state funding for it altogether. Uh, I would get rid of uh, all the welfare programs, uh, but you have to ramp that down slightly. I mean, you can't simply, well, the people are already out in the street, but I would uh, ramp down very rapidly. Uh, the social welfare programs that are being put in place. Certainly, I would stop the uh, uh, the uh, the bills that are in that are floated about uh, reparations. That would be off the table, one hundred percent. San Francisco's got a crazy reparations uh, bill that they're floating. I don't know what's happened with it lately, but uh, it's seen. Uh, it's basically the idea that if uh, you're white, you, you have to be punished for uh, what people did, in fact, in, another, in other states, not in California. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, would, uh, I, would get all, I would deregulate as much as you can within a state all these industries, and uh, I would, uh, I would uh, you know, what else would I do? I, I, that's pretty much, I would cut, cut the budget by like 75%, frankly, the state budget. I think actually we played a game when Angela McCardle was on um, the last time, and we actually went through all the like executive agencies under mm -hmm. the governor, and we went through like line by line, and I think she ended up, if she was governor, I think she ended up cutting like 75% of the agencies that we went through. We were like, cut or no cut, 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 yeah. just by name I, alone. Yeah, I would do a Javier Malay on California big time. Cutting, I mean, I'd just rip these agencies out and just, just abolish them straight up. Just to and, start uh, all over. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would, uh, the state needs like, uh, the bandage is ripped off because this is a, a mess. This, and, uh, it, it will not heal until they get these, uh, until the state interventionism is, 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 is gone. And uh, mm -hmm. people don't realize that actual real social welfare increases dramatically when the state is out of the business of social welfare. 
Mm-hmm. Because the state is nothing but a parasite. Um, the state is effectively a parasite that lives off the capital of any society. It is a capital-sucking, uh, you know, it's a, what, what, that's, I'm sounding like Ross Perot here. <laughs> a giant sucking sound I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a total parasite, and it just lives off the capital, and therefore depletes the capital base and decreases wealth and cre- increases misery. And so the state is the enemy, and as a governor, I would dismantle it as fast as I could. Too bad I we treated can't have you. A, I treat to say uh, that America needs like an elimination, elimination diet with our politicians. Just get rid of mm. all of them and then slowly add in a few. And then if they're not working, okay, get rid of those, add it. Okay. Just like, you know, just keep yeah. asking what's not working, what's making us sick and only keep the ones that are really effective. Exactly. I think a subtractive or eliminationist uh, is the idea. Eliminationism and subtraction uh, instead of adding things, you know, uh, which brings me to RFK Jr., which is like he's got these ideas of just adding this, adding that, you know, more regulatory commissions. And, you know, he, he thinks that the problem is regular. Yeah, the problem is regulatory capture. But the only way you get rid of regulatory capture is by getting rid of regulation regulators, period. It's not by, mm-hmm. you know, trying to extricate the corporate money out of it, you know, because whenever there's something to be captured, it'll be captured. So get mm-hmm. rid of the capture, capturable, uh, capturable entities, and therefore you get rid of the capture. I don't know why people can't understand this. People like him or uh, leftist progressives in general, they just don't get it. Yeah, call me crazy, but I don't usually trust when a politician says, I want to solve government issues with more government, because that to yeah. me... Doesn't yeah. it seems like it? You're, that's the wrong way to go about it. I know you got a. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say Nikki Haley. I saw. I don't know if you saw that clip today of her saying she wants to require everybody on social media. I mean, I guess war with Iran wasn't enough. Now she wants to go to war with everybody on social media. Bring all those deals. Uh, yes, I did. I tweeted something. I quote tweeted it. Yeah, she wants basically to have a registry in effect of everybody that's on social media. They have to be in under their own real name and all this. This is just unbelievable. I mean, she is a total authoritarian, totalitarian nut, mm-hmm. a nutcase. And the fact that they're giving her all this airtime and all these networks is just beyond belief. I mean, uh, and then she must have had 50 tweets supportive of Israel today. So a lot, you know, Candace Owens said, you know, she should run, you know, she she. she I, I I think I support her for uh, president of uh, Israel. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I mean, I, my theory is, and we're kind of getting off topic from California, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, California uh, my, is everything, though. California yeah. is everything. You know, whatever <laughs> happens here comes to your state eventually. Well, um, Nikki Haley, to me, and this is the impression I'm getting, is that she's the the candidate that's going to play nice with the beltway with the establishments yeah. with the donor base with raytheon and, and lockheed martin and, and boeing and she'll play nice with the military industrial complex and she'll play nice with the media like that's it, it seems like they're almost trying to shove this early 2000 establishment gop back mm-hmm. down people's throats and i think she's probably exactly. the personification of it to my in my mind 
Yeah, and they prepared the way for it with the way they managed to roll all of the so-called anti-war, anti-establishment Republicans back into the fold vis-a-vis this uh, Israeli conflict. They Mm -hmm. got them all back into the fold. Now they're all rah, rah, war, war. You know, these were the people that were saying no aid or funds to Ukraine. These were the people that were saying Iraq, the Iraq war was a mistake. It was a terrible travesty. These are the people that were saying, get the state off of our backs. They're now all together in it. It's unbelievable. It's like these people, where are they? They must have been, they're just team players. So they don't really see... um, uh, Prince, they don't see anything from a principal position standpoint. Yeah, it, it seems like it's wherever their next paycheck or or board seat is going to be. That's like Chris Christie; yeah. he's not going to be president, but where will he be sitting on the board next? Which war company will he be sitting on the board next? I think um, it's going to be um, uh, what is that uh, company um, that makes Twinkies? I think it's going to be that company. Hostess, Hostess, yeah, he might be on Hostess. the board of that. Yeah, he could be on the board of Hostess, <laughs> or maybe um, Blimpy. I don't know, Blimpy. Blimpy. Um, so we have a couple minutes left uh, before the hour. I want to thank you again for coming on. Um, My we, pleasure. We tried to touch on everything. There's some essays of yours that I had read that I want to talk about, but maybe we can talk yeah. about them another time. Mm-hmm. Um, in the final uh, couple minutes, if you had anything to kind of let people know more about you. Uh, I guess sort of if your summation of, of your, your candidacy and where people can find you. Sure. Um, so, you know, my campaign slogan says it all wreck the regime. That's R E C the regime. And by the regime, I'm talking about the state of course, but also all of its, uh, all of its appendages, uh, the corporates, uh, corporations, big pharma, big tech, uh, the military-industrial complex, the the Fed, that is the Federal Reserve, and uh, and so forth. So wrecking the regime means dismantling this whole configuration, and uh, so we're doing it through localization and through ed- liberty education. The way to reach the campaign is at wreck-the-regime.com. If you want to know more about me, you can go to michaelrechtenwald.com, where I keep everything a record of all my writing and uh all my essays and uh appearances and um media citations and and all that um and uh you know i've been at this for the liberty fight for about eight years now and um i uh I, I'm really, uh, I think I'm the only anti-war candidate in, uh, in the race. I mean, I, I, there are others in the Libertarian Party, but I, I think I'm the most stren- stren- strident uh, and strenuous anti-war candidate that's making that one of the main planks. So if you're looking to be, if you're looking for an anti-war solution or an anti-war candidate you can get behind that's not going to uh, sell out or equivocate, then that's me. But it's not wrecking the regime. It's not me doing this. It's 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 all of us undertaking this together. Right. Yeah. And I, I highly recommend um, to any of our followers or listeners, go check out com. Those essays that I brought up are, are great. Um, I was kind of 
binging on them in the past couple of days. And I just went down the rabbit hole. I've been enjoying them and I'll continue to read them. And uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Michael and his campaign, go to rectorregime.com. Um, so thank you, Michael, for coming on. And if you ever want to come back on, let us know next year or whenever. Open invitation. Thank you so much. So, I appreciate that. Maybe we can talk more about you possibly being governor of California. That might not be a bad idea. <laughs> you're you're well, sitting I, going, I think if I lose fun. this, that's the default position they give me. I thought. That's what they told me. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I would take it. Based on our conversation tonight, I, I'd be all for, for Michael Reckenwald uh, for governor of California. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you for coming on. And uh, to finish out the show, as we always do, if you like our show, make sure you subscribe, like, share, review, all that stuff. Comment helps with the algorithm. Um, the best thing you can do to support the show that is absolutely free, share it with somebody um, who would enjoy this. So with that, I'll tell you all good night. Later, everybody.